I'll be reading from Luke chapter 19, verses 11 through 27 in the Common English Bible. As they listened to this, Jesus told them another parable because he was near Jerusalem, and they thought God's kingdom would appear right away. He said, a certain man was born into royalty, went to a distant land to receive his kingdom, and then return. He called together ten servants and gave each of them money worth four months' wages. He said, do business with this until I return. His citizens hated him, so they sent a representative after him who said, we don't want this man to be our king. After receiving his kingdom, he returned and called the servants to whom he had given the money to find out how much they had earned. The first servant came forward and said, your money has earned a return of 1,000%. The king replied, excellent, you are a good servant. Because you have been faithful in a small matter, you will have authority over 10 cities. The second servant came and said, Master, your money has made a return of 500%. To this one, the king said, you will have authority over five cities. Another servant came and said, Master, here is your money. I wrapped it up in a scarf for safekeeping. I was afraid of you because you are a stern man. You withdraw what you haven't deposited, and you harvest what you haven't planted. The king replied, I will judge you by the words of your own mouth, you worthless servant. You knew, did you, that I'm a stern man, withdrawing what I didn't deposit and harvesting what I didn't plant? Why then did you put my money, why didn't you put my money in the bank? Then when I arrived, at least I could have gotten it back with interest. He said to his attendants, Take his money and give it to the one who has ten times as much. But master, they said, he already has ten times as much. He replied, I say to you that everyone who has will be given more. But from those who have nothing, even what they have will be taken away. As for my enemies who don't want me as their king, bring them here and slaughter them before me. Jesus really knows how to land a story, doesn't he? (laughs) Before we dive into the story and what Jesus is and isn't saying, um, I wanted to add my voice to Eric's announcement this morning about the class that's beginning today, um, reading through scripture. I often talk to people who maybe have considered themselves Christ followers for many decades, but have never read through the Bible completely. And typically the story is people say, I tried and I got stuck like two chapters into Leviticus, and that was it. Um, So what we are beginning is a kind of three-year experiment. Um, The the way that this works is that you only have to commit to reading eight weeks at a time, twice a year, for three years. 
Um, so, so we're following a kind of reading guide here that breaks it down that way. So during this period of Lent, you could commit to eight weeks of, of reading for maybe 25 minutes a day, um, and that'll get you through the first section. And then on Sundays, we'll be having open discussions where you can gather with others who are doing the same thing and just talk about what did you hear? What questions did it raise? What, where did it kind of take your imagination? Um, so this is the very beginning, which makes it a great time to get on board. We're doing Genesis to Deuteronomy during this, this period kind of going up to Easter. Um, so I hope that many of you will take advantage of this opportunity to kind of get in on the ground floor and do some reading. Again, you're only committing right now to eight weeks, and there'll be another eight weeks coming up in the fall. So there'll, there'll be a period of time between those. Um, but Liz is prepared to adventure with you, and I think it'll be a really positive experience for particularly those of you who've never tried something like this before. So let me just say a word of prayer as we begin. Jesus, you always startle and surprise us with your insights about God and the world. Help us to hear you clearly this morning so that we can follow you faithfully and passionately. In your name we pray. Amen. So our community has been, since the start of the year, on this journey through the Gospel of Luke. We've been looking at some of the different major themes that Jesus teaches on. Um, But one of the things we have not done to this point is we haven't really spent much time with Jesus' parables. Um, Parables are basically short stories about ordinary life that Jesus uses to teach you a kind of spiritual point from something that would have been really ordinary and familiar to people at that time. And what Jesus was known for, he he was kind of famous for being brilliant at telling this kind of story, uh, because the way that Jesus' stories typically work is that somewhere during the story, there's an element of surprise. Like, it works because you get into the story and you think you know where it's going, and all of a sudden there's this twist, this, this thing that you didn't see coming, that causes you to see the world differently. Now, in my opinion, maybe the the trickiest of Jesus' stories to understand are, there's a particular kind of group of these parables where Jesus uses a bad person to make a point about something positive in the spiritual life. Um, One of these stories I love to talk to people about, uh, the cheating manager story. How, How is a cheating manager an example for Christians? There's another one about a bad judge who doesn't like to do the just right thing. Um, So the story that we heard this morning belongs to that class of stories, a bad person, that Jesus has something surprising to teach through their story. So so in Luke 19, the story is about a truly terrible rich guy, truly terrible guy, who is appointed to a kingship. Now, this was a kind of common thing in the ancient world. Um, In the Roman Empire, the Roman Empire was ruled by the emperor in Rome, but he had kind of like under kings that were appointed over different regions in the empire. And if you were appointed to some kind of kingship of a smaller region, what you had to do was go all the way to Rome to get your official appointment and then come all the way back. Remember, this isn't a day without airfare, so you're, you're taking a bit of a hike. Why they made you go in person, I have no earthly idea. Maybe the emperor needed his ring kissed or something. But, but so, so being appointed to a kingship meant making that long journey. Um, so this truly terrible, horrible rich man is getting appointed to some kind of regional kingship. And, and he goes away to get appointed. And a group of people that are about to be under his rule hear that this is going down. And they think to themselves, this guy is going to be such a terrible king that we've got to do something to stop him. 
So they put their own delegation on a ship racing him to Rome to go protest this appointment. Now, what, what happens when they get there is the emperor really doesn't care much what the people under him think about him. So the emperor appoints the king anyway. So he gets on his boat, he comes back to the land, and now he's got his hit list, and he slaughters everybody who opposed his rule back in Rome. Now, what's kind of interesting about this story, this is the only parable that Jesus tells, to our knowledge, that is based on a true story. This is actually based on the historical story of a man named Archelaus. Um, Archelaus was appointed to rule Judea, which is the, the Roman region right around Jerusalem, where Jesus is standing during this story. He, he was appointed to this region during Jesus' own lifetime. And what, what happened when rumors began to go around that Archelaus was, a, was appointed is that he was so greedy and so terrible that when they heard he was being appointed, the, the Jews from this region decided to oppose him. Um, among other things, one of the complaints they had is, that rumor had it, he would just make up ridiculous things to accuse people of so that he could kill them off and take their property. Like, this was his way of behaving even prior to, to, to being in charge. But the, the emperor really didn't care what the Jews thought about his rule, so they put him in power. And, and among the many things he did during his time was killed 3,000 people within the temple precincts in Jerusalem. Right? He, he ended up being such a complete psycho that even Rome couldn't stand him anymore, and they actually deposed him because he was so greedy and so cruel. This is, this is a story that everybody would know. It happened recently. It happened right in the region that Jesus is standing. Like, everybody agrees that this guy, Archelaus, is a really, really bad guy. Like, no, nobody is disputing that. So the real focus of the story, the real interest of the story, it isn't the bad king. The, the real focus of the story is one of the king's servants, before this man who is about to be made king heads to Rome in Jesus' story, he decides to give some of his high-ranking servants each a sum of money to spend while he's gone. It's not a huge sum of money in the scale of a king, but it's, it's substantial for a normal person, a sudden kind of infusion of cash. And he tells them he wants them to spend it making a profit for, his, for the household while he's gone. Now, again, this, this would have been really normal behavior. Important trusted servants when, within households often had the job of managing the assets of doing this kind of business. Um, so each of these kind of trusted servants are given this kind of lump sum to make a profit while he's gone. And some of them immediately go out and they start investing the money they've been giving and doing their business with it. But servant number three takes his lump sum of cash and he gets out, um, this translation we heard this morning said a scarf. The, the term is actually a sweat cloth, like the thing he uses to wipe off his brow in the summer. And he literally folds the money up in his sweat cloth. He buries it in the ground under his bed. And when the man returns as king, his boss returns as king, he digs it back up, dusts it off, and hands him this money wrapped in the sweat cloth and says, here's your money back. What's his explanation for this? He says, I was afraid. I knew that this king is a petty tyrant who withdraws from money from the bank that he didn't put in and harvests crops that he wasn't the one that planted them. I'm scared of him. Now, on the one hand, that's not surprising, right? 
On the other hand, if you think about this for a second, it will probably occur to you that this guy has played his hand really badly. I mean, first of all, correct me if I'm wrong here, but even if you know your boss is a petty tyrant, you probably will not tell him that to his face. Right? Like, this guy didn't say that to somebody else. He said it to him. I know you're a greedy, little-minded person. Okay? Not your smartest move in the world. And second, the claim he makes here is that he's terrified of this guy. Well, if you're that scared of somebody, like, wouldn't you make a little effort at least to do the thing that they asked you to do? Like, he literally buried this stuff under his bed and just laid on it for months at a time. I mean, it appears that the servant is not just afraid, he also is a little bit lazy. And the king is the one that that points this out. The king says to him, so you think I'm a greedy tyrant, huh? Well, you think that would have inspired you to at least make a little effort to do what I told you to do? And then the story takes a real comic twist. This is my favorite part of the story. He says to him, heck, I never even expected that much of you. I would have settled for a couple cents interest if you just dropped the thing in the bank. I love that line. I never expected that much of you to start with, man. Like, just get some interest. What point is Jesus trying to make with the story of this truly awful king that everyone agrees is awful and this servant who's played his hand really, really badly? What is Jesus getting at here? Well, if you look through Jesus' parables, his stories, it's often the case that Jesus will compare either himself or God to a king in his stories. So that's a really common feature of Jesus' stories. Now, the point of this parable is not to say that God is a greedy and terrible monster, like Archelaus is a greedy and terrible monster. Like, Jesus' point is not to say, like, think of the worst person you've ever met, God's like that. Right? Like, we know better than that. That, That's not the point. But Jesus' point does have something to do with the fact that God is a king, right? God is a ruler, like this guy is a ruler. And God is a ruler who has third servant problems. God's a ruler who's got third servant problems. These third servant problems go all the way back to the beginning of God's relationship with the people of Israel, the Jewish people that Jesus is talking to. If you go back to the beginning of the Old Testament, the beginning of the story of God's relationship to the Jewish people, Um, What you'll find is that at the beginning of the story, God rescues these people from their captivity to an evil king named Pharaoh, right? So God rescues them from captivity to a bad king, and God says to them, I'm going to be your king now, I'm going to be a good king, and I'm I'm inviting you to be servants, members of my household, and the people of Israel are so proud to be chosen, they're like thrilled with this change from being under bad king Pharaoh in Egypt to good king God who's going to be just and merciful to them. They're thrilled about it. And God says, as your king, I'm going to give you some basic instructions about what you should do as my servants. And those instructions involve things like love your neighbors, be generous to the poor and to the immigrants who are among you. One day in every seven, I want you to set aside for worship. Be faithful to the person you commit your life to. Stuff like that, right? Not not rocket science, stuff like that. But wouldn't you know it, centuries pass after this, and this people that were so thrilled to be under King God with the just and the merciful, who were like, yeah, no problem, we got all that. 
they haven't done a thing about any of the stuff God told them to do. Right? Like, in, in fact, most of the time they did precisely the opposite. They trampled on the poor in their countries. They neglected and oppressed the foreigners. They were really terrible to their neighbors. Like, all sorts of things had gone wrong here. So, so Jesus knows the history of his people. He knows this has kind of been the history of God and God's servants, God's subjects. And here Jesus is. He's going to Jerusalem, the capital city, and he knows that he is about to die. He's going away. He's dying. He's going to receive a kingship from God. And what does he anticipate coming in the future? Jesus is a smart guy. He knows the future tends to look a lot like the past. Right? Jesus is anticipating that he is about to have the same third servant problem that God has always had through the story. A bunch of servants who are really proud and happy to be a part of God's household, but who haven't done a thing about God's actual orders. It's really funny because the, this parable ends with a line about the opponents, but it's not the opponents that Jesus is worried about, right? That's not what this story is about. Jesus is not worried about his opponents. He's worried about his so-called servants or friends who are going to feel really good about associating with him, but not really care about what he instructed them to do. It's interesting to me, that's what he's worried about shortly before he died. Not his opponents. He's worried about his servants, so I think the practical question is kind of raised. Why does this happen? Like, how does God, how does Jesus continually end up with this third servant problem of people who are proud to be trusted part of the house but aren't doing anything about what he says? My theory of the case here involves two different things. Um, number one, I think we should take the third servant, his claims at face value, when he says he is afraid. I mean, how does fear hold us back? What is he actually saying? I mean, I, I think there are some of us out there that have spent a lot of time just feeling a great deal of fear and worry that we are going to do the wrong things with the life God has given us. That we're going to do the wrong thing with our money. That we're going to do the wrong thing with our time. Like, we have this constant anxiety, like, how will I know what the thing is? What if the thing I choose isn't the thing? You know, we, we go round and round in our heads with these conversations, and some of us actually do step forward into something, but then, and I'm talking to myself here, we get halfway in, and then we start panicking, and we think, I never should have started this because I'm going to screw it up. Right? I have this kind of running conversation in my head, like, maybe I shouldn't talk about Jesus because I'll probably make it worse. Right? Like, I'm going to screw this evangelism up, and the person's never going to want to talk to a Christian again. Like, maybe I shouldn't be a leader because I might make a bad call, and then I'll be responsible for the guilt of that bad call, and it would have been better if I'd never done it to begin with. I mean, what if I leap and that wasn't God? Right? Like, what if I screw this thing up? Well, if you have experienced any level of this fear about doing the wrong thing or screwing it up partway through, I think Jesus has two answers to this. Um, answer number one is the worst thing we can do is treat God as if God was Archelaus. Right? The, the, most, the, the fastest way we can dishonor God is not by messing up. It's by acting like God is a cruel, petty tyrant, like the other human cruel, petty tyrants we know in the world. 
There's no point in any story Jesus tells, there's no point where the wrath of God falls on the head of a person who is sincerely trying to do the right thing and be pleasing. Right? The wrath of God does not fall on people who screw up in effort to do the right thing. And in fact, we, we know that our, our vision of this king is totally out of whack because of that twist at the end of the story where the king says, hey, I didn't expect that much. I would have settled for a few cents. Right? This, this vision of the king that is only expecting a thousand percent return and will never be happy if that's not what he gets, Jesus is like, something is really off about that if that's the image you're carrying of God. Right? It's like worse than tyrannical. The second thing I think that Jesus kind of points us toward here is when you are investing somebody else's money or resources, something that belongs to somebody else, what is your basic obligation? Like if, if you go to a financial investor and they're going to invest your money for you, what, what is their core obligation? It's to respect your desires as the person the resources belong to, right? Like you don't go to an investment advisor and you're like, I want to play it safe here. And they're like, good, I'm going to go gamble all your money in Vegas, right? The, the job of a, the person who's investing for you is to follow your values in placing that investment, well, everything we have, Jesus constantly reminds us, everything you've got is God's. Your time, your breath, the strength in your body, your resources, all of that belongs to God. So doesn't it make sense that when you think about how that should be invested, that what you are following is God's values and God's risk tolerance and not yours? Right? That doesn't seem so mysterious. Like, it's, it's God's stuff to invest, to risk. Why not follow God's desires and values? Well, what are those? In the story Jesus tells, there's these two servants that make these huge colossal returns, 1,000%, 500%. And you, you might be reading that going, like, who makes that kind of profit on their investment? Well, this is how business worked in the ancient world. When you invested in the ancient world, there were no, like, bonds. You go big or you go home. Right? In the ancient world, like, you invest and you either win big or you lose everything. That's the way that it works. I mean... Jesus seems to imply that as an investor, this is how God feels about investment. Go big, go bold, or go home. Right? And, and it makes sense because this king, this king has entrusted his servants with a sum of money that I'm sure seemed huge to them as humans, but it's pittance in the coffers of a king. Right? Like whatever you're carrying, it might feel huge to you, and it is big to you, but in the, in the treasury of the king department, the king's got a lot of stuff, right? He can afford to risk it. You're not going to make or break this project on screwing it up. And this is why the king looks each servant in the eye and says, I'm not interested in playing it safe. I'm interested in boldness. Try it. Go in. Right? Lose it. Win. It's okay. The king's going to be fine. What Jesus makes really clear in this story is that this king has a bias for action. King has a bias for action. The one way you do not please this king is by being like, hey, I didn't mess up. He's offered, in the course of the gospel, we've heard all sorts of these commands to go and make peace, to give everything we've got, to go out and seek the lost. And what the bias of this king is for people who take action and actually try to do it, regardless of the outcome. 
So, so that's fear, right? One obstacle is fear. That, that's Jesus' answer to the question of fear. This stuff is God's to risk, and God wants to risk it. Be- better to go in than play it safe. But as we've already noted, fear isn't the only factor in this story, clearly, because if all this third servant had been was afraid, he presumably would have tried something. And what's really fun about this story is actually the Gospel of Matthew tells it too, and the Gospel of Matthew has a slightly different wording. When the king talks to the third servant, the king says, you lazy servant. Right? In Matthew's version of this story, this is actually called out, laziness. Why didn't you do anything? In the early Christian tradition, one of the deadliest sins, the early Christians said, is the sin of sloth. That's a fun word, right? Sloth. And I don't know what you think of when you hear about the sin of sloth. A lot of people think that sloth is not working enough. Um, But I was reading a really interesting article this past week by somebody who had researched the kind of history of this, who, who pointed out that when the early Christians talked about sloth, they actually said outright, you can be busy and still be slothful. You can be busy, you can be working a lot and still be slothful in the Christian sense because sloth is laziness in love. It's laziness in love. So you can be all busy and full of things that you're doing, but all of those things can be a distraction from the thing you were actually supposed to be doing. I mean, who of us hasn't tried that strategy installing on something, right? I mean, you can indulge yourself while lying on the sofa, or you can indulge yourself by running around like a chicken with your head cut off. I mean, and the early Christian writers went even farther than this, and they said, you can be truly generous with other people, you can be doing sacrificial things, and you can still be slothful if after you are generous and doing these sacrificial things, then what you do is sit around and think about what a burden it was and how much you sacrificed. They say that too is sloth, it's laziness and love. It's leaning back from rather than into the transformative work that God is doing in you. You know how I I feel really confident the early Christians were right about this because if there's one thing we're clear on about Jesus, he makes it very clear in his teachings what counts as profit to Jesus, what counts as a return to Jesus, what counts as fruit to Jesus is always love. And Jesus is always very clear about this, but we can find literally a thousand excuses to do other projects and never give him the one thing he actually asked for. And then we can end up at the end and be standing before Jesus and he says, what did you do with what I entrusted to you? And we say, here's my list of things that I didn't do. Here's the stuff that I didn't screw up. And Jesus says, you missed the point, right? This was never about not messing it up. It was never about being generically busy and accomplishing lots of stuff. The project was always love. The investment was always love. Now, here's the good news as we close. God is not a tyrant. And the question of this story is not, how much is enough to make this king happy? That's what, I really, what really makes me happy about this story. That the point is not how much is enough to make the king happy, because the king just said he would settle for pennies. He would settle for pennies. The outcome is not his concern. What he is concerned about is the action. His concern is the effort. 
Jesus looks around at, at his disciples and he says, saying to me, saying to God, I don't oppose you. I'm not opposed to what you're doing, God. Doesn't make you a servant. Saying I don't oppose you doesn't make him a servant. Servants are the ones who hear the words and do something about what he said. A Christian is not a person who calls Jesus Lord. A a Christian is a person who lives as if Jesus is Lord. Who lives as if what Jesus says and what he instructs is the only thing that matters. Now, this is an interesting, challenging teaching because I, I don't get to end today and tell you exactly what to do about this. I can only ask you a question. What is God calling you to do because Jesus has spoken? We've been in the Gospel of Luke for months now. We've heard a lot of different things that Jesus has taught. But what has God been calling you to do that has spoken through Jesus that you haven't done? I mean, can you identify in your own life, is there anywhere that either fear of screwing it up, fear of doing the wrong thing, fear of making the investment, or just sloth, right? Distraction, laziness have been holding you back. I mean, remember, you don't have to be perfect for this to work. God is not a a Silicon Valley banker who's like a thousand percent or nothing, right? That's not what this story is about. The point is to hear and to respond with what we have as we are, as we can, right? If only you had just invested in the bank, it would have been enough. What would it look like for you to go in with what you have as who you are, Let's spend a moment of silence and in prayer just thinking about that. Jesus, I imagine somewhere in the dark corners of all of us, if we're quiet and we listen, we can feel a pull of resistance against something you have taught or instructed. We hear you. (laughs) We hear you. We know what it is you've asked for. But something in us says, no, not that. Not me, not today. That's too hard. That's too disruptive. Other people wouldn't like it. What if I mess it up? What if I heard wrong? We give to you all of that fear and doubt and uncertainty, that resistance. We just pour it out in front of you. And as much as we are able, right now we seek that deeper inner yes. Yes, Jesus, we are available. Yes, we desire to be your servants, not just in word, but in action. We desire to call you Lord, not just in name, but because you were the one who instructs the course of our lives. We 
we say yes to the risks. We say yes to the discomfort. We say yes to the unsettling. We say yes to the unknown. Do with these investments whatever you will. A few cents, a thousand percent return. That's on you. We offer you our faithful yes. In the name of Jesus, our merciful King, we pray. Amen.